Well, it is good. It's good to be back with you after being gone a few weeks. It's always great to worship with my family, extended family here. Let's open up to the eighth chapter of Romans. Woohoo! Back to Romans. Uh, we have been on a little break from that uh, this summer. I'm going to get back to that now. We are on, actually this is message 105, if you want to know. And we've come to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Just an unfolding exposition of what this preacher believes is the greatest letter ever written. I'm going to read, it's been some weeks since we were in verse 17, I want to read that, it'll help to set the platform, the context here a little bit for today. Romans 8, 17, Paul writes, and if children, if we are children of God, if we are sons and daughters of God, than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. When we looked at this verse, I pointed out that this word here, provided, should not be read as if Paul is introducing a condition that must be fulfilled by the hearer for the promise to be true. As if we, by our suffering, earn our salvation and eternal glory. That is, That flies in the face of the entire teaching of both the New and the Old Testament related to our salvation. One of the principles of biblical hermeneutics is that don't take one text and use it to conflict with the clear teaching of the rest of Scripture. What Paul is doing here, the right way to read this, is that he is introducing an already fulfilled condition. The structure there in the Greek with that word provided is assuming an already established fact. As if he were saying or we could say it is not if we suffer, it is since we suffer with him we will also be glorified with him. That's the meaning. We talked about what suffering does when we were in this verse, how suffering proves and how suffering provides. Suffering proves, suffering identifies that we are in fact sons and daughters of God. It should not be a road sign to you 
questioning whether or not you're on the right road or whether or not you're actually living a Christian life, if you are suffering in any degree or capacity for your Christian faith, if you're enduring trials for that, then it should be a strong, clear testimony to you that you are in fact unquestionably a son or a daughter of God. Suffering proves. It also, it also prepares. Incredible thing in the, in the economy of God is that He takes suffering and He uses it for good. That's just one of the many multifaceted aspects of the sovereignty, the power of God, is that He takes what to the rest of the world and on the surface seems negative and bad, and He actually uses it as a tool to work great things in us. to work maturity in us, to help the character and the quality of Christ shine brighter through us. So Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Then we come to the 18th verse, and Paul is still on this idea of suffering. Let me back up even a little further and just remind you of the overall structure of the 8th chapter of Romans. It opens with a propositional truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And for the next 38 verses, throughout the entire chapter, Paul takes that statement, that propositional truth, and he validates it over and over and over again. He gives a supporting truth to that one great truth. Romans 8 has several sections in it in which he validates the fact that those who are in Christ who have truly been saved, that their salvation is secure. And he teaches that in a variety of ways. Then we come to the 18th verse and what he is doing in verses 18 to 25 It's one of those subsections in which in those, what is that, six or seven verses there, or eight verses, he again validates and supports the truth of the great propositional statement of verse 1. Let's read Romans 8.18. Actually, I'm going to read 17 and 18 together since they flow. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. First of all, let me just, it's obvious, is it not, that Paul is holding up two concepts here, the sufferings and the glory. Verse 18, the sufferings and the glory. Let me just give you four, kind of to start with here, four kind of overarching truths related to the sufferings and the glory. First one is this, they belong together. They belong together. That is the story of the Christian life. I know that there are some that teach otherwise, but they are not teaching accurately the truth of the Word of God. The sufferings for the child of God, the sufferings and the glory belong together. They're married. They cannot be divorced. As with Christ, so with his followers. And what was Christ called? He was a man of church sorrows. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Should we expect any less as parts of the body than the head, Jesus? They belong together. Secondly, the sufferings and the glory characterize two ages. The sufferings and the glory characterize the two ages. Let me give you two terms for these two words, suffering and glory. In the Greek, suffering and glory. The comprehensive, encompassing condition of the world is included in this idea of sufferings. That means all of our physical and our moral frailty and any opposition against us. All of that is included in that term, sufferings. Why is this so for those that have been redeemed and saved? Because there's one final aspect of our redemption that has not yet been completed. And that is the redemption of our mortal bodies. And so, not that Christ has not done it all, but it is just awaiting the time of his return until that final aspect, until we are liberated from our mortal flesh, our mortal bodies that become the avenue through which we experience sufferings and pain and trials in this world. So sufferings, that's the age of this world. The second word there is glory, doxa in the Greek, doxa. This is a hard 
I think probably most of us have kind of an overarching concept of what this word means, but the problem is it, it's impossible for me here in the imperfect vehicle of human words to try to express clearly or fully what that word means. It's trying to define something that is infinite and boundless with finite and bound up words. It cannot really fully be done. But what dopes or what glory refers to is the unutterable splendor of God, eternal, immortal, incorruptible. It's really a description of God. How do you define that? How do you describe that? But what Paul says here is that the sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us, second age. You see, suffering related to this age, the dokes of the glory, the splendor of God related to the next age that's going to be revealed to us. And if you unpack that truth, it doesn't just mean we're going to see it from a distance. What it means is it's going to be revealed to us and in us. We're going to experience it. We're going to be in it. It's going to be a possession in a degree of our own. That's the age to come. We're not there yet. We're in this suffering eon, this arena described by the first word, but what's coming in the next age is the doxa. Not something that we're just going to see, something that we're going to come into and that's going to be a part of who we actually are. So number one, sufferings and glory belong together here. Number two, sufferings and glory characterize the two ages. Number three, the sufferings and the glory are incomparable. Incomparable. You see, in this life, sufferings and glory cannot be separated They should not be compared, but they can be contrasted. The point is that God's glory, splendor, that we're going to be endowed with when Jesus Christ returns is so immeasurable is so transcendent and so boundless that it is 
an act of absolute and utter futility to try to compare it to the degree of our present suffering. They're incomparable. We cannot compare the greatness and splendor and brilliance of the glory of God that is going to be ours to our minute, as Paul called it, light and momentary troubles. They're incomparable. Number four, the suffering and the glory encompasses all God's creation. Just kind of fourth overarching truth. The suffering and the glory encompasses all of God's creation. You see, Paul is writing here about a cosmic truth, not just a human truth. You'll see that in the fuller section of 18 to 25 where he talks about creation uh, longing and groaning. Matter of fact, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read that section for you, 18 to 25. Listen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, Paul is talking about an all-encompassing reality when he's talking about sufferings and glory. Here's the way it happened. God created a perfect world without suffering, without pain. And into that world he placed a man and a woman created in his image. Perfectly moral, not immoral. He created them in perfection. He created them without sin. And they willingly rebelled. And because of their rebellion were condemned and justly sentenced by God. But what happened in our willing choice is that the earth... The rest of God's created order came under a curse as well, unwillingly. We chose it, but to the rest of God's created order, that curse was subjected upon them because of our choice. Therefore, we live in a world that is 
in decay, that is liable to corruption, that is in the midst and the process of corruption. That's because of the sin and rebellion of man. But what Paul is saying here is that one day in the next age, not only is this restoration of the followers of Christ going to be a reality, but the rest of God's created order is going to be fully restored. Both the material universe and the human creation are going to be set free from its bondage to corruption. Verse 21. It's an interesting phrase. The ESV, Paul writes, I think it's in verse 20. Let's see. 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Eager longing. It's an interesting Greek word or Greek term. It means to wait with expectation, raised head, eyes fixed on a certain point on the horizon from which you expect the object that you are looking for to be coming from. Paul's picture here is personifying creation as one standing there, tiptoed, neck creening, eyes focused and peering, longing for what? Longing for what? Looking for what? For the children of God to be revealed. That's the longing, that's the groaning of all creation. Creation is straining, intensely peering, and eagerly longing for God's children to be revealed. Revealed in two ways. Number one, who they are. The identification of those who are the sons and daughters of God. Number two, what they will become. The glory that's going to be theirs. And when that intense, peering, eager longing is satisfied and the children of God come into their glorious, complete identity in the next age, what's going to happen is that power of God that transforms them with that glory then is going to continue to flow and spill out from there and it's going to sweep over all of creation and everything that was wrecked by the fall is going to be restored by the power of God. All of creation. It's why there is a longing and a groaning. You see, 
God is going to get the glory. Sin will not win the day in any degree. What sin has wrecked in his created material world, the curse that has come upon it will be restored. As we will be. So what I want to do then, if Paul is saying here that suffering and glory are incomparable, I want to be true to the text and I don't want to compare them. I just want to contrast them for a minute. I want to contrast them. How are they so radically different? Number one, their frequency. Their frequency. Sufferings are occasional. The glory that is coming is constant. Number two, their depth their depth. Sufferings and troubles and pain. For the son and the daughter of God really should only go skin deep. Now I'm not trying to minimize heartache and emotional turmoil. But the real power of suffering is limited to the sons and daughters of God. It can't reach to your soul. It doesn't need to diminish or defeat your spirit. It's something related to your mortal body, not something that goes to the core of who you are. Though outwardly we are wasting away, Paul wrote, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So the contrast between suffering and glory is in their frequency and in their depth. Number three, in their longevity. In their longevity. Again, Paul's logic here proves itself to be airtight. How can time of any duration be compared to an eternity that defies duration? That's why Paul says they're incomparable. How can you take the sufferings of a moment and compare it to an endless duration of glory? Incomparable. There is no math formula that works for that. One is finite and fleeting. The other is constant and forever. They're incomparable. And then their magnitude. 
for a degree, maybe. The sufferings have an ebb and flow. Sufferings in this age and this earth have an ebb and flow. At times they are sharp and intense, consuming. Other times they're a dull ache that kind of hovers in the background and very often there's no recognition of any suffering in the moment. Think about how that is contrasted with the glory. Now, I don't have time to unpack this, but I'll give you a few thoughts here about my deep conviction about that glory. We, we're going to be transformed when Christ returns. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be transformed. You're going to become like Him. I'm not saying you're going to be Him, but you are going to be a part and partaker of the very glory of God. And that glory will be undiminishable in any degree whatsoever. It's not going to be an ebb and flow to the glory. It's going to be constant, eternal, forever. With this added caveat. I believe in at least one sense, it's going to increase throughout all eternity. Because God is an infinite God. And it's in seeing and knowing Him that we are transformed. And throughout all of eternity, we are going to be coming into greater and greater understandings of who God is and His glory. We're going to be ongoingly amazed. It's never going to wear off or diminish. We're going to be seeing new aspects of the infinite greatness and splendor and majesty and glory of God throughout all of eternity and that seeing Him is going to have a continuing, I believe, increasing effect on us influence on us as our mind uh, this mind, the new mind that's going to be unshackled by the confines of this mortal existence it's going to be an expanded mind and it's going to continue to expand as it dwells on and meditates on the infinite subject of the nature of the glory of God forever growing in understanding of that in increasing measure throughout all eternity. They're being influenced and impacted by that in increasing measure. Believe that with all of my heart. How incomparable the sufferings, the light and momentary troubles then are compared to the glory that is going to be ours. It's the sons and daughters of God.
Now maybe just a few words of application and then we're going to sing some more. Paul says here, the beginning of verse 8, for I consider it's a really critical statement. For I consider and then he works out a thought. He works out a great truth. Same word back in the 6th chapter when he was teaching about who we are in Christ having been baptized into Christ, having been made new and united with Christ, he said, now I want you to reckon yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Same word, reckon, consider. Here's the point. What Paul is saying here is that the truth that's being communicated is reasonable and logical and you need to. God wants you to. That's why He put it in His Word. He wants you to reason it out. He wants you to understand it and get it deeply embedded in your mind and heart because that truth and the foundation of that conviction held deep in the heart is what is going to take you day by day, step by step through this life, live for the glory of God. Your lifestyle is going to be grounded on doctrine. It has to work that way. That's always the way it works in the New Testament. The application is impotent without the foundation of the doctrine because it's the doctrine, it's the truth that you believe and embrace that enables the walk. So in light of that, Paul is working out a thought here. And he comes up in verse 17 to this idea of suffering. And folks, he's writing to people who are suffering. And so he's trying to help them practically in a real way, day to day, in the midst of their struggles. And so what does he do? He gives them the grounding of the truth that will be a sure and firm and solid and unmovable and undefeatable foundation upon which they can stand in the face of whatever life brings. They need to get traction on the truth to withstand the storm. So in light of that, let us close with these three things. That this truth, this truth about what is coming for you, if you're a son or a daughter of God, the truth about suffering being the pathway into glory in the next age, a glory that is actually not just going to be seen by you, but experienced, possessed by you 
You're going to be transformed by the power of God and He is going to give you some of His glory. I don't mean He's going to lose it for Himself, but you're going to share and participate in. When you see Jesus, you're going to participate in His glory, becoming like Him, seeing Him as He is. That truth right there should do at least three things to the follower of Christ, to the son or daughter of God. It should sustain them with resolve. That truth should have a practical day-to-day difference in your life if you really believe it and embrace it. It should sustain you with resolve. What the enemy of our souls wants to do is wear us down by a relentless opposition. And what a relentless opposition needs is resolve. So that it is not worn out and discouraged. So that it does not lose heart. Number two, this truth will not only sustain you with resolve, this truth deeply embraced will infuse you with hope. It will infuse you with hope. Maybe another way to say this contrast that Paul makes is this. Folks, what's more real, this world or the next? That wasn't rhetorical. What's more real, this world or the next? Eternity or something that's like a fleeting mist that's here for a moment and vanishes? What's coming is the real. We live in a clouded realm where what we're trying to do right now as sons and daughters of God is to see reality, to see beyond the scene with the physical eyes into the truth about the spiritual realm. That cloud, that mist will be lifted in the next age. But this age is not the real age. The one that's coming is the real age. You're a son or a daughter of God. This is not your home. You're not a citizen of this world. You're a foreigner and an alien here. You're just on a journey headed home. A guaranteed, secured home. One that no one can take from you. One guaranteed by the promise and the power of the sovereign God Himself. That's what Romans chapter 8 is teaching. It is secure. That's why Paul is speaking like this. He's driving that point home. God has promised you a future glory, but not only that, He is preparing it right now. And if God has promised it, and if God is preparing it, who's going to take it from you? Secure. There is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you already have the promise that your sufferings are headed to glory. So the truth should sustain you with resolve, infuse you with hope, and then finally, this truth will strengthen the son or the daughter of God with joy. Maybe something that we overlook too much. Maybe I do at least. I don't know about you. You know, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it says about Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to that again. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see how powerful joy is? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy transcends circumstances. Joy transcends suffering. Joy is not based upon. It drives through. It penetrates. It's above and beyond suffering. Transcendent. This truth will speak into the midst of your difficulties and your sufferings the strength of joy. that will empower you in ways that nothing else can. It's for you, sons and daughters of God. For those here that have never placed their trust in Christ, here's what I want to say to you this morning very simply. Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, left heaven and came and died for you. He died for you because He does not want you to live under this the power of this corrupted state. He wants you free. He wants you free. And so He took your sin upon Himself, literally. Ladies and gentlemen, please hear that out. If you've never heard this, Jesus Christ took upon Himself every one of your sins. He owned them as His own. And He hung there guilty on a tree and the Father, the Holy Father, turned His back on His Son, guilty of sin. And the Son cried out, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It is a picture of the literal, real, shouldering, owning of the sins of humanity, your sins. And then he paid the price that sin requires, and that's death.
And then he rose again, just like he said that he would do on the third day. And now he offers what I've been talking about this morning. He offers to make you a son or a daughter of God, a joint heir with himself, so that his spirit is placed within you, your soul is made new, and one day, one day, you will be glorified. If you try to earn that, it is a slap in the face to the all-sufficient sacrifice and the Holy Son of God. You can only receive it in faith. Jesus has done it all. But He's offering it to you today. I'm going to just say a prayer. As we close and we'll sing some more, Father, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit now would just take these imperfect words and thoughts spoken here, condition them with love and grace. Apply them with precision and depth and let them produce the fruit righteousness and holiness in the hearers I pray for your glory Father do that for your glory Father if there are those here that you are giving the faith to believe in your Son, revealing the truth they need to understand. Pray you would bring them in this morning. And if that's you, one of those is you, I'm just encouraging you to cry out in your own words for the help that only Jesus Christ can provide. Tell them you believe in his death and resurrection. Tell him you bring nothing of merit, only your sin. And ask him to cleanse you, make you new, and put you on the path toward glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.